I'm Tom, I'm the preaching pastor here at Hope Reform Baptist Church, and we're very welcome and glad that, that you are here with us tonight. Um, <coughs> two, a, a week and something ago, I snapped both of my shin bones walking in a kid's playground, because apparently I'm 75 now. Uh, I turned, yeah, so anyway, uh, that happened. Uh, there's no cool story that goes along with it, but um, I thought I'd mention it and in case you saw this and were very confused, but uh, uh, this is my first uh, sermon back here at this church since I did that, so I'm very glad to be back. Um, I think uh, uh, God did it just to have a sense of humor because I said last week to the church plan, I, I spend probably 50% of my time on social media is just laughing at pastors who sit down with little tables and on stools when they're doing preaching because they think it's cool and it looks hip and it's so dumb and it is so lame. Uh, but now I'm stuck sitting down to do my preaching and I can't help it and I look like one of those guys. So <laughs> uh, anyway, that's what God did and I, uh, I hope no one complains, but uh, you can open up to the book of Revelation as we begin our series through the first three chapters. Uh, we will not be going through the whole of the book of Revelation, though I'm sure many of us would love to, and I, of course, would love to, but we are going, uh, really, it's, it's, a, it's a series through the epistles or the, the letters of the book of Revelation. The first, uh, uh, sorry, chapter two and three are seven letters written from Jesus personally to seven churches, but uh, we are taking chapter one also in two chunks, so half tonight and half next week in order to get ourselves some, uh, uh, some context for the letters. Who is it that is speaking? How does God want us to view Jesus as he's speaking to us? What is the relationship that we need to be reminded of between us and he who speaks those letters? Uh, uh, what is the authority? What is the tone? What is the spirit of uh, the speaker as Jesus gives these letters? And so we will not just jump straight into chapter 2, but in fact start in chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 8 in Revelation chapter 1. Next week we will do uh, verse 9 through to verse 20. And then from then on we'll start in the seven letters. <clears throat> So hear now the authoritative word of the triune living God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. Amen. Well, what we have so far is that we're going to go through 10, uh, uh, 10 rapid-fire points that we can glean from these first eight verses of the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, we have to remind ourselves that in the book of Revelation, it is filled with imagery, 
filled with symbolism and filled with Old Testament references. So that if we were to do my normal practice of just line by line expositing and exegeting every single word and meaning, we would just take far too long, but also we would miss the whole point. Uh, One of the beauties of the book of Revelation, especially as we see these glorious visions of Jesus, is is that it's always coming to you with more than you can handle at any one point. There's always more being shot at you than you can handle and then you can get a grip on. And that's part of the glory of the book of Revelation. So we're going to go through 10 rapid fire points that we see from uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. And the first is that God speaks to us through John's revelation. Look at verse 1. It is very clear. It starts out, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So John the Apostle, the the son of thunder, as he was called, the brother of James, uh, uh, one of the, the 12 disciples who became one of the foundation layers of the church, one of the scripture writers. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the epistles. He wrote the Gospel of John, and now he writes Revelation. Uh, This man, John, is the human writer. However, there is a very um, uh, definite hierarchy uh, that this message goes through from God to us. And it goes from God to Jesus Christ. And in classic apocalyptic uh, revelation-styled literature, it goes from God to Jesus to an angel to John the Apostle and then to us, his servants. So we see that. He he just said, uh, God gave Jesus this revelation, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known, that is, Jesus made it known, by sending it to his, sending his angel to his servant, John. So there's your, your five-point hierarchy, from God to Jesus to an angel to John, and then to us through Scripture. Now, what we start realizing, as soon as you start reading Revelation, the very first verse tells us that when we read Revelation, we are reading the word of God. This is the most important mark of any church that you either visit, go to for an interim period of time, or this church if you are here a long time. The most important part of health in a local church is that it views the scriptures that were written by the real historical apostles as the inspired words of God without question. That is the ultimate mark of a healthy church. When God seeks to speak to, his, speak to his servants. He did it through inspiring apostles. Today, when God wants to speak to his servants, he speaks through the scriptures. That is to say, when the scriptures speak, God is speaking. When the word is preached rightly, it is God again speaking it to us. The Puritans used to call this a re-revelation. God revealed the truth through the apostles into scripture And then whenever it is accurately expounded and preached, it is as if God is re-revealing it to our hearts. The wind is coming back up through the pages and and striking our souls with the truth. This sermon series, therefore, this this walk through the letters of Jesus uh, to the churches, is that uh, what forms the basis of this sermon series is that God is mediating or communicating, revealing his truth to us through the scriptures. So so when we come and we we listen to preaching and you come to church and you uh, 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 sit and listen to to preaching, you're not hearing the voice of a guru. 
You're not coming and listening to a, a spiritual leader only. You're not coming and, and hearing the advice of a life coach. It is God speaking through these words as he has inspired his apostles to write. And so we come, therefore, to the preaching of God's word, to the reading of God's word with open hearts, with expectant hearts, that as the word is applied and expounded, God is speaking to us personally. That's point one. Point one is that God speaks to us through John's revelation. Point two is that Jesus is himself the message of the book of Revelation. Look at verse one. Verse one says that this, this whole book, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that what is being revealed in this book called the Revelation, what's being revealed is not just an event, is not just a period in the future, is not just a a, a series of truths, it is a person. What is being revealed through the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. Verse 2 also goes on to say, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we just see he uses these three phrases which are synonymous with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything that he sees in the book of Revelation, and there is amazing things that he sees. Everything that he sees can be wrapped up in the testimony of Jesus Christ, his person, his work, and his gospel, which is another way of just saying the word of God, the word from God, the word that belongs to God, or another way of saying that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that when we seek to preach Christ from Revelation, it's not jumping from one topic to another, but God has made very clear, even in these first two verses as we break them open, that to understand the book of Revelation and all that John saw is to understand a a more glorious, exultant beholding of Jesus Christ. When we come to Revelation, and this is in fact true of all Revelation, meaning all of Scripture, which is breathed out by God, God is speaking and Jesus is the message. John the Apostle is the messenger, but Jesus is the message. His sin-free life, that he was born of a virgin as God in human flesh, that he lived without sin under the law of God, especially as a Jew under their covenantal laws, that he never once sinned against God, that he, that he uh, uh, taught and did miracles and healed many throughout his adult ministry, and then that he was, he was reckoned with sin and was killed on the cross under Pontius Pilate, that he died on the Friday and that he rose on the Sunday triumphantly into a glorified body, and that then 40 days later he was ascended to heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out repentance and forgiveness to all those who believe on him. That ministry, that message is the message of the book of Revelation. To understand that gospel is to understand Jesus, and to understand Jesus is to understand the ultimate message of the book of Revelation. That is why we must not get too confused with all of the imagery and all of the the symbolism and all of the apocalyptic pictures. What we need to keep on driving into, and this doesn't mean that there's not worthwhile debates about when this is fulfilled and what the millennium looks like and all of that, and we'll have great discussions. But the point is that if in any of your interpretations you miss the point, you're distracted from the main point being Jesus Christ, his triumphant gospel, his soul-saving message and ministry, you've missed the point of revelation. 
John wants you to go back to verse 1 and start again, realizing that the first phrase is, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 3 says that it is such a blessing to understand it. Look, in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's why I'm doing it loud. That's me. I'm blessed by reading it. And blessed are those who hear. That's all of you. And he who keeps what is written for the time is near. That's all of us, God willing. It is a blessing to hear it, to read it, to obey it, because all of its content centers on Jesus. So, of course, it's going to be a blessing for us to understand and to dive deeper into. This will also be one of the key marks of Hope Reformed Baptist Church into the future, and any healthy church, is that the life-changing, soul-saving, powerful proclamation of Jesus is central. You will hear it Every single week, you don't have to wonder or tap, you know, tap the, the pastor on the, on the shoulder before church starts and say, I'm bringing, I've, I've brought an unsaved friend tonight. And if you're an unsaved friend that's been brought along, we're so glad you're here. You don't need to do that and say, please make sure you get to the gospel this week because I've got an unsaved person here. That will be the case. That will be assumed every single week or your pastor's failed. The gospel of Jesus is central to the Bible because Jesus is the message of all of Revelation. Now, number three, look at verse four and five. (coughs) The triune God gives us grace and peace through his word about Jesus. Verse four says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. You might not realize it because in classic Revelation style, it's kind of veiled, but this is one of those really key, fundamental, New Testament, Trinitarian formulas. Remember that phrase? That just means there's there's certain verses that you can go to to just see a rock-solid understanding of the Trinity already behaving within the early church, uh, church's mindset. And this is one of those places. That in what we just see here in the, the he who was and is and is to come, that's a picture of the Father. That's Old Testament language for, for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Um, it, 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 it's talking about the fact that he is the sovereign. He is the eternal one. He is the unseen ruling God who initiates grace and peace through his sovereign plan. Okay, he's the father. Then we see the seven spirits before the throne of God. Now, this number seven in the book of Revelation is sometimes literal, but always a picture of fullness. So wherever you see seven, sometimes there really are seven lampstands. Sometimes there really are seven people or seven churches or whatever. But wherever you see seven, you should also see on top of that a symbolism of fullness or all of the rest. So when you see seven spirits before God's throne, don't start getting worried about whether or not we have the right Trinitarian creeds and thinking, is there in fact nine members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the seven Holy Spirits? That's not what's going on. But rather, we're being, we're showing, we're being shown by John's vision that the wholeness of the Holy Spirit, the full, complete, and true Holy Spirit, who can, in other words, be said as the seven Holy Spirits of God, is before the throne of God. That's all it's saying. But what we need to see there is that that is speaking of the Holy Spirit. So we already see the Father on the throne. We see the Holy Spirit who is before the throne. And that's relevant because the Holy Spirit mediates or delivers to us, that word mediates means, He delivers to us the grace and peace that the Father initiates. 
You'll see this in Ephesians 1. If you go and read Ephesians 1, it's awesome. The Father predestines all grace for us. The Holy Spirit now comes and applies all grace to us. And so as we come to the throne, the Holy Spirit is before the throne to bring the grace and peace to us that the Father on the throne is bestowing. But thirdly, we see the Son, Jesus Christ. And that is way less hard to prove because it literally just says, and Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ. He is the one who has purchased the grace and peace for us. He is the one who embodied the grace and peace, who took on the the human nature, came down, died in our place, bled for our sins, rose again, and has therefore purchased and uh, secured all peace, peace and grace for us. Do you see the triune God here is symbolized as giving grace and peace to the churches through the word about Jesus Christ. And the seven churches here, as we were just saying earlier, the seven churches are true seven churches in Asia Minor. We'll talk about that next week. But they are also just symbolic of all churches throughout all time because there's seven of them. There was more churches that he could have written to. He picked seven, I think, as the symbol of they are receiving these letters as a representation for all the churches that will receive this letter. And no doubt, all churches do receive the letters in the finished scripture. So the triune God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity and cooperation are pouring out grace and peace through his word about Jesus. And in hearing about Jesus through scripture, we are being blessed. Sinners will be saved. If you're not a Christian yet, you can be saved tonight because Jesus is being preached. If you are a Christian, you can be made more holy and you can grow and be taught because Jesus is being preached through this book, which is a blessing to hear. And number four, we're going to see in verse five that Jesus is our prophet. We've already seen Jesus Christ named and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. I'm going to read the next couple of phrases so we can get the context. In speaking about Jesus, John says this, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, one of the key uh, uh, doctrinal points or areas of study that came up through the Reformation back in the 15 and 1600s was the area of Christology, uh, and particularly the person and work of Jesus Christ as it applied to his offices. Calvin especially sort of taught, uh, and especially through the book of Hebrews, it's quite, quite clear and glorious there in Hebrews chapter 1, but he showed that Jesus fulfills the, the big famous main Old Testament uh, offices that people would be called to fulfill. So if you were a particularly anointed, um, uh, uh, special person in the Old Testament, and you were called to do a particular ministry, you would either be a prophet who spoke God's word to the people, or you would be a priest who, who prayed for the people to God and made sacrifices to God for the people, or you would be a king who ruled God's people and kingdom. Now, very rarely would they ever overlap especially anybody who was king would not usually be any of the others. But in Jesus, we see all of these three offices come together in the exalted and glorified ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And we start seeing that applied here. Jesus is called in verse 5, the faithful witness. And this is talking about his prophetic role. When it says that he's a witness, in other words, it's saying that he, he bears witness to God. He, he speaks truly what is true about God. That's why he's called the faithful witness. Uh, uh, 
He does it faithfully because he does it truly, accurately, trustworthily. He reveals God to us. Where, where John says now in this passage that he is a faithful witness, back in John chapter 1, verse 14, he will say that Jesus is literally the Word made flesh. He is the Word incarnate into us. So he's not just like the other prophets who bore witness about the Word or who spoke about the Word. He is literally the Word come among us. He is so much the prophet that he is the Word that he is speaking. Jesus is the faithful witness. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 18 of John chapter 1, John calls Jesus, uh, he says that that no one can see God, but, but the Son who is at the Father's right hand, he has exegeted him, is the literal translation. Jesus literally is the perfect exegesis of God. That's the word we use for scripture, for preaching, for getting the true meaning out of something. Jesus exegetes the Father. So he's the faithful, he's the faithful witness, the prophet. <clears throat> uh, uh, and this is why, of course, this is why we preach Jesus. Because Jesus preaches Jesus. Because the whole Bible preaches Jesus. Because Jesus is the prophet who preaches himself. This is why he gives us grace and peace. And this is why the message of the whole Bible culminates in Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to perfectly know our God and be reconciled to him. That is why it is such a blessing. That is why we, uh, we are pointed to this direction by John. Jesus is the faithful witness. There's, there's many false prophets in the world today. Now, some of them are just across our car park. Some of them are probably, uh, you, you've got your, uh, your, your senses up. Maybe they're the guys on the, on the Christian radio station or on YouTube and you know to watch out for them. But there's other false prophets that don't pretend to be nearly as religious in our world. These are the people speaking to you through podcasts. Often these are the people speaking to you through counseling sessions or, or pagan and, and uh, uh, anti-Christian ideologies. Sometimes these are the people who say they care about you the most and just want to support you and be here for you. These often can be false prophets. Sometimes it's just coming to us through our songs on the radio. But these people will, as false prophets, like Satan in the garden, say things like God is just so restricting. You, you shouldn't draw so close to him. He's, he's holding back from you. There's more on offer if you would just ignore him. There's, there's better things to be gained outside of his word. He's not all that scary. You don't need to be judged by him. You don't need to fear that one day you'll be punished by him. He's not a judge. He's a loving father. But you know what? He's, he's not all that of a good father. And, and he's, uh, he's actually quite a bad father. And he's traumatized you. The world today is filled with false prophets who will speak false things about God, but Jesus is the true witness, the true prophet who speaks to us only truth about God. He is our ultimate prophet. And next, fifthly, Jesus is our high priest. The next phrase in verse 5 is that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now, you might hear that and think, how does that relate to the priestly role? Well, think, what do priests do? In the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, you were coming to the temple and say it was the, the year of Jubilee or the Day of Atonement and you bring the sacrifices and you watch the whole ordeal take place where the, the high priest cleanses himself and goes through all of the testing and, and then he takes the, 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 the animal blood and he goes behind the veil into the holy place and sprinkles the blood on the altar to atone for the sin of the people. Now, if, if God accepts his sacrifice, 
He can walk out from that veil and you will see him again. And you know your sins are forgiven and you're good to go for another year. Well, so Jesus, as the high priest, took his own blood and through the veil of the grave went into the heavenly holy place And only because God accepted his sacrifice was he enabled to become the firstborn from the dead. One who came back through the veil of the tomb as the stone was rolled away and he came through it. That is a witness to us that Jesus is not just a priest. He is not just a high priest. He is the high priest that all high priests were pointing towards. And he is the high priest which now means that there is no longer a high priest necessary. You don't need anybody to mediate you to God because of your sins. Jesus does it all. He has perfectly represented you. He has perfectly made the sacrifice. And he has perfectly reconciled you to God if you trust him by faith. He is Jesus Christ, the high priest, therefore the firstborn from the dead. And... In verse 13, we're also going to see that he's wearing, in John's vision, a long robe with a golden sash. This is a priest's outfit. So John wants us to see Jesus as a priestly figure. All right, number six, Jesus is king. Look at this last phrase that is attributed to Jesus in verse five. He says that he is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. This is one of the most common themes in the New Testament preaching that the apostles would go and do. They would be saying, not only did Jesus die and atone for our sin, but after you killed him, or after the Jews killed him, or after the Greeks uh, butchered him, God raised him up and didn't stop there, but also exalted him to his right hand. And the whole theme coming through that is the idea of authority and power to the highest place of authority and power that there can ever be. So in evangelical circles, it's common for us to say, yeah, Jesus is king. Jesus is king of my heart. That's not what the New Testament means. You'll never find that phrase in the New Testament. Jesus is not king of your heart. Although, of course, he is, but only because he is first king of the entire cosmos. When we say that he is king, we are not saying that you let him take control of your life again. You put him back on the throne of your heart. What we are saying when he is king is that God has made him Lord. God has put him into the the seat, the, the place and the position of all authority. So Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus himself says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Acts 2 verse 30, Peter says that he is sitting on the throne of David. Paul in Ephesians 1 says that he is there far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name. Acts chapter 5 says that he has, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 2 says that he has been made both Lord and Christ. Philippians 2 says that God bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Revelation picks up this theme by continually using this phrase that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is not just King of the church, though he is King of the church. 
Jesus is not just king over our hearts, though. He is king over our souls. Jesus is, as verse 5 told us, ruler of the kings on earth. This means that to the persecuted church, go back to John's generation. As he's receiving this writing from Jesus, and he's going to send it off with the courier to the churches of, of Asia Minor, this persecuted church who cannot gather on a Sunday to worship Jesus, do good works, feed the widows, help the poor, preach the gospel. They cannot do that without Rome, the most empowered superpower nation that has ever existed with a, with a grossly swollen army, with legionnaires in every single city, breathing down their necks, sharpening their swords and chasing them, throwing their elders into prison. The Herodians in Israel also doing the same thing, chopping off the apostle's head. This persecuted church who cannot gather without that persecution has just been told that there is not a single emperor that will ever go down in history being over the Roman Empire, that will not give an account to King Jesus. That will not be judged by King Jesus. In fact, there is not a single political ruler the persecuted church needs to be comforted by. There is not a single political ruler that has ever taken a stance against the church who did not do so simply because they were a chess piece on Jesus' chessboard. And he saw it as advantageous to his own glory that he would give them that power for a moment and then take it away from them. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's our prophet, he's our priest, and he is our king. Now, as we, we see Jesus himself high and lifted up in this glorious, amazing picture, his, this threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, it befits, us to, it befits us to ask, what did he do? With all of that glory, with all of that honor, with all of that power now, 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 now consummated in him, what did he do? And the answer is that he established the church. Look at verse, the end of verse 5 going into verse 6. It says, to him, this prophet, priest, and king, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. What did Jesus, the eternal God in flesh, do in his role as prophet, priest, and king? He gave us grace and peace, we were told earlier. He did not just curse us as a prophet could have done. Come to us, prove all of our sins, show all the scriptures that we were breaking and curse us. He didn't do that. He didn't come and cut us off and push us away and keep us from the holy place like a priest could have done and like a priest did do in the Old Testament. He didn't do that. He didn't come down and subdue us and kill us and conquer us as a king could have done. He gave us grace and peace. He established the church through his blood. So look at what it says there in verse 5. He loves us. Not loved, past tense. Not loved in the first century, but man, 2,000 years into this thing, he can see what Christians are like and he's starting to wear pretty thin because 2,000 years is a long time and Christians are pretty stupid people. No, he loves. As long as the book of Revelation is in the, the inspired scripture, it will always be in the present tense. Jesus loves us. He loves us who by nature he should hate. He loves us who by nature hate him. He loves us who are sinners, and yet at the right time, he gave his life for us. The next phrase is that he freed us from our sins. 
Sin is a guilt term. Let nobody ever tell you that sin is mostly about mistakes and little whoopsies and, um, uh, you know, failing to meet your ultimate potential. And That's not what sin is. Sin is that you are a guilty rebel and a criminal against God, and because of his ultimate righteous law, which he loves, he will measure out and pour out judgment on the breakers, on the lawbreakers. And yet, sin is also more than that. Sin is also a trap. I like to use the imagery of of somebody who has gotten caught in maybe something like quicksand, but a thick tar of this black, disgusting thing that you can't get out of, and the more you fight, the, the lower down you go. And just to finish off the imagery, imagine that the city's waste and sewage is running into that, that, that pool that you're in. You're stuck, you're defiled, you're doomed. And yet Jesus has freed us from our sins. He has undone that, that death penalty over us. He has freed us from the trap of our sins. Now, some of you are still in your sins. You have not yet repented and believed in Christ. And, and that description hits something very deep in you, and, and, it, and it feels exactly accurate, that you are trapped, that you can see other people walking in certain ways, and you can read certain passages about doing certain things, but you yourself are trapped under sin. You see no way out. You see no genuine way that people can actually be living free from this tyranny and dominion of sin. You need to go home and read Romans 7 and Romans 8. That shows us that struggle. But if you are still in that struggle, the good news is that Jesus can free you and offers to free you and may free you tonight if you just believe and rest on his saving blood because that's how he frees us. Look at the next word. He freed us from our sins by his blood. He reversed the death penalty against us. He he undid the judicial penalty against us because he shed his blood when it was our blood that should have been shed. Therefore, he rescued us from our sins, freed us from our sins, cleansed us from our sins by his blood. He died so that we did not need to die. And therefore, we can say that he established the church through his blood. The prophet, the priest, and the king established the church. Look at verse 6 as he continues to explain what it means to have established the church. He made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, verse 9 of chapter 5 is going to pick up similar themes. As they are singing to Jesus and praising him, the, the people in heaven say, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, but do you see also that he makes us in this interim period until we each personally die and go and see him, or until he comes back and consummates his kingdom, we are, we are in his kingdom in the, in the now sense, and we are prophets, priests, and kings. We are a kingdom in the sense that we apply his rule and reign to all of life. We don't let there be any portion of our personal lives or any portion of the public discourse that we do not apply Christ's lordship to. Every enemy has to bend its knee to Jesus Christ, ultimately. We are priests in the sense that we are bringing people into the temple of God. That's our evangelism. 
We are, we are priests in the sense that we are holy, made holy by Christ's blood and bringing other people to the Lord Jesus Christ in his temple. And we are praying for them and praying for one another. And we are prophets in the sense that we speak the word of God even to the point of shedding our blood. And that's a theme that comes up later in the book of Revelation. The martyrs that continually die are prophets. They are speaking the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, as prophet, priest, and king, has established the church, that was number seven, by making us a kingdom of priests and prophets to his God and Father. I feel like I want to stop for questions, but we just don't have time and it's not really that setting. I think I just feel a bit more casual because I'm sitting down. Uh, So we're just going to go on, all right? Point eight is the one that we're up to now. Point eight, Jesus is worthy of glory. Look at the second half of verse six. Let's just read all of verse six because it is so good. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jesus, because he has established the church, because he fulfilled his ministry given to him by the Father to be prophet, priest, and king, because he has done all of that, he is now worthy of all praise and glory that can possibly be ascribed to him. He is worthy of all of our praise. First of all, from the church, that is the believers who love him. He is worthy of our praise. Look at verse six. It says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And you just, you responsibly yelled out, amen, because that's exactly how you feel as somebody freed from your sins by his blood. We love to give all glory, dominion forever and ever to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter five, verse 12, picks up another instance in the book of Revelation where people are praising Jesus because of his sacrificial work. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13 in chapter 5 does the same thing again. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the song of the redeemed throughout the whole of the book of Revelation. Jesus died, raised, purchased people for his God, and now we give him praises. It's like that song that we sing. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's on Charles Spurgeon's um, gravestone. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. But of course, it's not just till you die. It's forever and ever and ever we will be singing that theme. Praise to Jesus who died for us, who is worthy of all glory and praise and honor. But this glory that Jesus is worthy of does not just come from the church. Look now in verse 7, we see that it also comes from his enemies. Not willingly, but Jesus does get glory out of his enemies. Verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That's a lot harder to amen, that one, isn't it? May Jesus come and make his enemies scream and wail and cry in pain and torment as he exacts on them his judgment. You could almost feel John just sort of swallow, take a moment and say, even so. Amen. It has to happen. 
Jesus will put down every enemy. It doesn't mean that they all go down willingly. Many, including many in the first century, many who killed, we even see here, the, the, those who killed him, those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth, those who, those who killed Jesus, those who remain enemies to Jesus throughout the church age, they will see Jesus coming, and it will be a horrible, horrible day. And yet even there, Jesus will receive glory through judgment. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus has received this glory from the Father. So there's not really a new verse for this. We're just going back to verse 6 and asking, who gave Jesus all of that glory and dominion and blessing and honor? And the answer is that the Father gave it to him. We remember Philippians 2, that because he died and humbled himself, God therefore exalted him above every other name. So the Father has given Jesus, his son, this glory forever and ever. The God who rose him from the dead. The God who sent him to die. So in one sense, it's true that we give Jesus glory in our praises. But in another sense, we don't give Jesus any glory in our praises. I know I was saying before, we should, and we should want to, and we should amen that. But in another sense, we don't give any, any glory to Jesus. Just like when you look at the sun and you say, that's a very warm sun, it doesn't get hotter because you, you tickled its fancy. You never go to, to, the, to the Louvre and look at the, the Mona Lisa and say, that is a historic, gorgeous painting, and then it increases in value. Rather, what we're doing is simply ascribing to Jesus what is already objectively true about him. He has all glory. He was given all glory by the Father. Therefore, we necessarily respond rightly to his glory. We don't make him more glorious. We don't create glory or worth or blessing or honor in him. We rather just praise what is already objectively there. Number nine, God is the only one who controls history. This will take us to our last verse. Look at verse eight. And remember the the comfort that this would be to the early church who is suffering, who is, who is doubting the, the assurance and the, the certainty that this church would really be the kingdom without an end, that would really take over the whole world as a mustard seed would, would, would become the largest tree in a garden, like a little bit of leaven would leaven the whole lump. These Christians are being persecuted and they're just wondering how certifiable all of Jesus' claims to cosmic rule and influence are. And we appointed in verse 8 to God. I think this is particularly referring to the Father who says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we've already seen this phrase, who was and is and is to come, and that's, the, that's the, the Old Testament language of the eternal God who never had a beginning, will never have an end, and is, is, is the overruling sovereign. At every point and any point in history, you know who's God? The God who was. Little bit of time goes by, you know who's God? The God who was and is. Kingdoms rise and fall, you know who's still God? The God who was and is and is to come. It's still God. It's still Yahweh. Yet he uses this other phrase, this Greek phrase. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the, the Greek alphabet runs from the letter Alpha right down to the letter Omega. Those are the, the first and the last points in the alphabet. But more than that, not just in their, uh, in their uh, 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 alphabet, but also in their philosophy, the Greeks believed in, I guess we could call it a Big Bang point, 
They believed that the whole universe started at this, at this point zero point that they called the alpha point, the beginning of everything, the purpose of everything. And all of the logic and purpose and beauty and design and love and experience and wisdom that would ever be unraveled throughout history was condensed in that moment and began this whole thing we called life. And it will, through entropy or whatever it is that they would explain it, it would ultimately come down to the omega point, the final point, the thing that this is all coming to. And so if you're a good Greek philosopher, you would tell your students, understand as much as you can about the alpha, about where we came from, why we're here, what we're here for. And know also as much as you can about the omega point. Where are we heading? Where are we going? What is the purpose of all of this? And if you can understand the alpha and the omega, then, then you understand everything. You know where you sit in life. You know how to respond to the world. You know who you are because you know the Alpha and the Omega. And God says authoritatively, I am the beginning. You go right back to the beginning. You know what caused all things. It's me. I'm the Alpha point. It all came from me. It all came for me. It all came through me. It's all going to me because I'm also the Omega point. The glory of God, as Romans 11 33 through 36 will tell us, the glory of God is the ultimate purpose for the universe. And because God is the most passionate person, being for his own glory, therefore he is sovereign over every moment, every month, every political season, every nation and every kingdom. He is sovereign over it all, working it all to bring about his designed and predestined ends. God is the alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come. He is the eternal God. He is now in the sense that he has set his son on Zion's hill in heaven. He is the judge, and he's appointed a day which Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He is God now. Everybody is commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or perish in your sins. There is no other option. He is, he is the God who, who was because he has been planning this glorious gospel, Jesus-centered ministry and covenant and kingdom for all of eternity. As, as far back into eternity, now our minds can't figure this, but as far back into eternity as we go and we ask God, what you're going to do? He's going to say, I'm going to glorify myself through saving a people through my son. It was always his eternal purpose. He was. He currently is doing that, and he is to come because there will be a day when prophecies run out. There's nothing future anymore. There's no such thing as tomorrow. It's just eternity. When Jesus comes back as the judge, as the prophet, and the priest, and the king, and all those, Hebrews tells us that he will come back a second time not to deal with sin, as in not to solve any of the sin problems, not to atone anything ever again, but to, to take to himself those who have believed in him. There'll be a day when Jesus comes back and he won't make another offer. He will simply say, wherever you're standing on this day, that is it. If you die and you have not yet believed in Christ, you will suffer the punishment for your sins. If Jesus comes back and you have not yet repented and believed, you will suffer the penalty for your sins. But if today, and today is the day of salvation, there's no need to wait. If today you rest on Jesus, because as John paints this great picture of him, you realize there is nothing that compares to him. He is glorious. He is gracious. He is giving of peace from God on the throne. There is none like him. If you believe that and you rest on his grace to save you, 
then you will be saved this moment, this instant. You'll be brought into the family, into the kingdom of God. And Jesus will defend you, love you, cleanse you, and free you from your sin. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving a revelation of Jesus to Jesus, which he would then give to the angels to reveal to John, which he would write down that would be carried and given to the churches throughout this age. We thank you for the book of Revelation. That is, no doubt, filled with mystery, filled with, with symbolism, filled with some confusion. And yet, Lord, as we understand it more and more, we see Jesus Christ shining brightly. I pray, Lord God, that, that each of us, as we go on to study into the future years, this book of Revelation, as we study the Bible wherever we're at, as we, as we come in each week and we hear what Jesus says to the seven churches and through them to us, we pray, Lord God, that each of us would be coming ready to repent, ready to obey ready to be made new and made more sanctified, ready to change what we are thinking, change how we are speaking, change how we are prioritizing because we have been struck with the undeniable reality that Jesus is the greatest and most glorious priority and reality in all of the earth. We cannot live for, for anything else that compares to him. We cannot get joy in anything else in a way that compares to the joy that he gives to us. We cannot serve a greater purpose than giving our all, giving our life, giving our, even our breath and our blood for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that tonight you would give new hearts to those who do not yet believe and those who desire to believe, those who desire to be freed from their sin, those who desire to be freed from the judgment of God that will fall on them through Jesus Christ. Would you please give to them, Lord, freedom from sin and a heart to believe in the Lord Jesus. And to those of us who know you, who love the word of God, who have been blessed in the hearing tonight, would you make us all the more zealous, impassioned, empowered to speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus despite what it costs and to trust you that you will fulfill all of your promises for the church because you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the one who was and is and is to come. You are the first and the last, Lord Jesus Christ. You are the living one, and we entrust ourselves entirely to you. And everybody said, Amen.